Welcome to the Odds Pod. I'm Ben Hennessy. And I'm Dave Hendrick. And we're the team behind your next new favourite comic, The Odds. A story of love, loss and limbs. Lots and lots of severed limbs. Each week we invite a guest or guests on to share their favourite apocalypse stories with us. Be it the fall of Rome, the death of Disco or the strange case of the Strasbourg dancing plague of 1518. Look it up. We want to get down with disaster, flirt with failure and ease into extinction. So, today's guests? That's right, we've two on today. They are the brain trust behind LB Comics, one of Ireland's best independent comic publishers. Their catalogue boasts some amazing titles like Meowch, Lens, Plexus and Mixtape. Their two Kickstarter anthologies, Turning Roads and Down Below, have been massive successes. And their third recently announced anthology, Fractured Realms, is well on the way. Individually, they are Gary Maloney and Paul Carroll, and are very welcome today at the Odds Pod. Hey guys, thanks for joining us. Hey fellas, what's going on? That's some intro. Like, I, I understand. <laughs> I understand why everyone keeps saying this now. It's like that feels nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's weird to be introduced with compliments, and uh, here's this guy. <laughs> And here's a dude. Okay. Um, no, thanks, guys. That's that's great. We we work hard on them, and we you know we we, we pride ourselves in, in in kicking off well. You know, um, Dave says we. I gotta say it again. All the credit goes today for the intros. He writes them all. Uh, but you bring them to life, Ben. <laughs> it's, it's my dulcet Mexican tones. That's it. That's it. My <laughs> man. You know, bring in diversity to the odds pod <laughs> with your your Mexican accent. Um, this is it. That's why I'm here. So what's going on, Paul, Gary? What's what's happening? You guys have been really busy. Yeah, I don't think I've slept in about a month. <laughs> so we... Uh, we... <laughs> <laughs> well, you have a baby, so you don't get to sleep. Um, yeah, but about a month ago now, I think it's a month, just under a month, yeah. we launched down below a top bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it feels much longer since that happened because I've been packing the, the, Kickstarter, the Kickstarter ever since. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not fun trying to pack things right before Christmas, but uh, it's <laughs> it's it's been something keeping me busy while, while we then launch other projects. Yeah. Um, so we just we don't like to keep quiet or so take a rest ever. <laughs> so so Gary, tell us tell us a little bit about Down Below. So Down Below looks at Greek mythology through the lens of noir crime stories. So it's one of our the latest of our mythology anthologies that we've been doing for the last couple of years. It started in 2020, 2021, when Paul had the mad idea to update and reinterpret Irish folklore mythology through a kind of sci-fi fantasy lens. Uh, and he put together Turning Roads. And then after that, we we were kind of thinking about and talking about as a group, our, both the two of us and Garrett Luby, who's the third the third branch of Limit Break Comics. Uh, but what we might do next, because Turning Roads did in really well and Paul had put in a lot of effort into it. And it seemed like something we could expand upon because we were able to work with a lot of different artists and writers from all over the world, not just Irish talent. And there seemed to be an appetite to kind of do more. And I'm a bit of a crime junkie when it comes to ma- either making comics or reading comics. I love noir crime stuff, whether it's Brubaker and Phillips, Ed Brisson, all that kind of stuff. I, I really, really love that. I had been threatening for years to put together a crime anthology, uh, either just do it all myself or to curate one and invite submissions. And then the little devil uh, on my shoulder, Paul Carroll, he's like, but well, what if we did it with a, with, a, with a mythology? And then we were kind of thinking, well, what would we do? Because we were thinking about, oh, well, there was a couple of obvious myth- mythology or pantheons that we could go down. Norse mythology is another one that we're now, now dealing with. Mm-hmm. And we we're like, well, what if we just did Greek mythology? Because at the time, uh, Hades, the video game was big and both, Paul and I were playing that. Uh, we were also listening to things like Hades Town, which is this kind of jazz musical set in the 1930s where the story of Orpheus and Eurydice is reinterpreted as this sort of Depression-era railroad uh, drama. And at the, funny enough, at the same time as well, things like Lower Olympus, the comic on Webtoons, was getting becoming massive as well. So it was all this influx of like, Greek mythology was kind of be, blowing up in a big way. And initially we were just like, okay, Greek mythology as more crime stories, done. And then we thought about it a bit more. And the more we thought about it, the more the kind of the themes of Greek mythology and noir crime fiction kind of fit together. Because obviously we know about Greek tragedies and things like that. But there's a bittersweetness to a good noir crime story. Even when, you, when the characters win, 
when they have a victory. It's always a small victory against systemic issues or systemic problems that they can never really defeat. And that's the same thing in Greek mythology. You have often mortals coming up against the powers of the gods. And if they do get a victory, it is often short-lived or it's not something that changes the world or or creates any kind of long-lasting peace for them. And so it kind of really worked out well in that regard. People were able to pick up on that in pitching. And rather than just being a fun little mashup, it made thematic sense. And that's the kind of thing that we realized, well, maybe that's what we should be focusing on in doing these mythology anthologies going forward. I don't know if Paul wants to come in and talk about like how he approached down below, but that's definitely how, how I thought about it anyway. Well, I just wanted to provide context. Like the conversation for when we started talking about down below was a week into the Turning Roads Kickstarter. We had just, the book was funded. So at that point I was like, I'll do another one. (laughs) And I knew when we had decided on down below what the theme for the North Harbor was going to be as well. Like we've, I've been sitting on that for a year and a half now, just waiting to announce it. So like it's, I've I've known for a while what what that was going to be. And we already have ideas for the next ones down the line, but like it's, it's things that we just have to kind of, not even talk about or we'll want to do them too soon. Um, we, we kind of told ourselves one a year <laughs> because otherwise they'll go a bit mad. Because mm-hmm. um, the the editing process, well, the, the choosing of the, of the stories process, I should say, the editing is a whole other ballgame, but actually selecting the stories excuse me, from the pitches. So so that, how that, many pitches would you get on, on, a, on a book like um, Turning Routes or even, or even Fraction Routes? Um, which we'll get to in a second, but like, just give give, the, so, give, so, give us a sense of that. Turning Roads, which was the first one, um, which was just on the back of my weird notions, got 37 pitches. Right. But then down 37. below, 37, yeah, and, eight, and 18 went in. Down below, got 189. Wow. <laughs> yeah. wow. And at that point, when we were picking them, I said to Gary, we can probably put in two more. We could just raise the target a bit. And then we liked too many of them. So we went in with four more. So it ended up being 22 stories in the book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we had five times as many pitches. So amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. And again, pitches from all over the world. Um, yeah. Yeah. Wow, very good. Yeah. Very good. And like, is it word of mouth or is it people who have um, picked up your previous Kickstarter or like how, how, how do you have you said how that's getting around? unfortunately it's Twitter <laughs> so the, you know the thing that's dying it, yeah. it's that that's getting people to, to know who we are um, and, and I, think just, let, like, I think it'll survive us all I think I think we're safe there for another while yeah I, I think it's probably more of a phoenix than, uh, than a chirping bird <laughs> but um, yeah like the, the previous uh, contributors to the books tend to just tell people hey picture stories of this like we've had especially a few in, the, in down below they've been saying how much they liked working with us which was really nice to see and they're, they're encouraging people to pitch for fractured realms because they know it's a positive experience which is really really nice because we, we put a lot of work into it so to actually see the contributors appreciate it is, is always something because yeah, I mean, your, your turnaround times as well have been great. You know, you, you've, you know, it's it's been a pretty quick process from pitching straight through to getting the book into into people's hands. Um, and I think that's something to be really proud of. You know, because mm-hmm. um, some kickstarters can take take a little longer than others. You know, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's 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 really nice yeah. to 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 see. I mean, I've I've been keeping up with your tweets on the distribution of down below um yeah at the moment and god help your local post office because you're you must be rocking up there every day with like giant boxes of books ready to go yeah the, the first the first shipping of it was 151 books for international backers so because i'm doing all the labels yeah. on, on the on post site mind you so i just i did 151 of them one go uh local post office couldn't get parking so we had to go to the next post office over. <laughs> uh, so we were later getting there than we need, than we wanted to be. Yeah. This is my mom driving me down. Oh, God bless her. Uh, so we, we rock up to the post office with two Tesco trolleys full of books. Wow. At a quarter to five. This is how you do and, it, uh, yeah. gave, gave the post office staff a bit of a, a, bit of a heart attack. Yeah. And then my mom went to Tesco 
just she had to pick up stuff herself and came back with some <laughs> chocolates for me to give them. Nice. To oh, thank nice. them because I see you keep them on your side. That's good going. Yeah. yeah. So, so when I showed up, when I showed up at that post office again a few days later or a week later, uh, same staffer there and uh, same woman was serving. She goes, "Bring it on." Yeah. <laughs> How many is it this time? I was like, "Only fifty cents." Fine. <laughs> <Where are your laughs> chocolates. <laughs> was she expecting chocolates this time around? No, they didn't ask for chocolates. Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay. You got to be careful with that, you know. They're, they're yeah. better people than me. It would have been the first thing I would have asked. Yeah, yeah. Here's the chocolate guy. Come on. <laughs> the, the, the absolute shock that, it, that from seeing the first lot, like one of them, she was accidentally brewed just from surprise. Oh, yeah. And she she apologized for about 10 minutes. Nice. <laughs> and then I then felt worse when I handed chocolates into them, so... <laughs> So you have the moral upper hand now going going forward. You know, you can you can yeah, drop and, in any number of books at this stage. We're we're spreading it out to a few different post offices. So I, I walked a few down to my local, which was a bad idea because um it was it was any backers that had just backed her down below in turning roads, but it ended up being thirty kilos worth of books. Oh, and I walked that <laughs> I was like because in my head I was like, Well, I've carried eighty packages down before when mm. I was doing turning roads, but that was 80 packages with one book that was thick and this was 50 odd but it was two books so it was wow. <laughs> I hadn't really thought about it so I was dead by the time I got there nice. uh, how long of a walk was it were you like knocking out like 5k or something with a 10 no, it was, it's only like a 10 minute walk but it felt like an hour <laughs> <laughs> so folks if you see if you're Paul's, wondering about Paul's you know sculpted physique that's why it's all just reaching these books to and from post ops if you see if you see Paul at a con anytime soon be sure to compliment his calves you know, because uh, he's, he's been working on that them. body apocalypse ready. Working on them for the sake of comics. Fair play to you. Um, and Gary, um, you've been working away as well on, on I suppose, on, on sifting through through the pitches. And like, you, you know, you you and Paul are, are both writers as well. So how how does that work for you? I mean, you, you, you know, you've got your writer brain, you've got your editor brain. Um, do you have to step away because you have what you like, you know, you have your own preferences in terms of what you want to write and what you, what you are into, but then I'm sure you can be challenged by pitches every so often where you see something that, you know, might necessarily be to your individual taste, but you know, it'll work for the book. So have you had that kind of row with yourself, um, as you've been going through the pitches? Definitely. I think it's important given that there there are quite a number of people who kind of straddle the line between writer and editor in the industry these days to know when it's your story and know when it's not and to understand what your role in the process is. And your role isn't to rewrite it the way you do it. It's to try to make it the best possible version of the story that the creators want to tell. So part of the editorial process when we were trying to select pitches was, okay, we needed to have a diversity of myths involved. So we couldn't just have everyone doing their version of the 12 labours of Hercules or pages one to whatever of the Odyssey. We had to have have a mix. Persephone. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But uh, we had to have that, but we also had to have a mixture of like tones and the different types of noir. So neo-noir, kind of classic noir, and then sort of like Hollywood noir, things like the Fado and things like that. So... When, when it came to actually having select those stories, we kind of understood what the stories were meant to be or what they should look like or what was the aim of the story more so than anything else. What was it trying to tell? What was it trying to say? So when trying to edit it, there was times where you'd be like, okay, I think this dialogue would work better or that having it snappier uh, or have a sh- having it shorter might work better for the economy of the, of the page, the economy of the comics. Because I think that's something that can often be overlooked is that particularly when you're working within four pages, every panel counts and mm-hmm. every speech balloon is something that takes up part of the page. You have to be cognizant of the, the amount of pages you have, where the page turns will be and working towards that and ensuring that particularly when you're on the page turn that you have something that propels you forward to the next page. So that, and that if you're going to have the surprising part of the story, don't have it on the third page because you open up and you don't, you already see it and you kind of spoiled yourself on it. So it was more trying to find ways to structurally allow them to tell the story they wanted to tell and giving them the tools and the techniques to help to tell that story, as opposed to being like, I think this is a, 
I think this is a bad interpretation of whatever myth. I think if we focus on this aspect of it, it'd be better. Like that's not the road at that point. And if it's, if it has gotten to that stage, then it's likely that we, that if we had such a fundamental disagreement about how that kind of myth or what the themes should be, then it probably hasn't gotten over the line of being included in the book anyway. Yeah. The book, the stories that got in were the ones that were obviously what we thought to be the best amongst the pitches, but the ones mm-hmm. that spoke to us. So it was reminding ourselves that, and sometimes you, 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 like you get pushback, and ultimately you have to, to say to them that ultimately it's their story at the end of the day, and a lot of the editorial advice is merely that. It is just advice. There will be a couple of things where like, if we if we think it's necessary for the story to work, we might be a bit more hard on. So things like the the knowing where the page turns on and building towards that. But if it's a matter of like, well, we want to use this dialogue versus another piece of dialogue, ultimately it's a matter for them if they want to keep the, the original version or tweak it slightly. Uh, but I think it's about knowing that role and playing to that role rather than trying to insert yourself into the story. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Excellent. I mean, that's very encouraging for anybody who's considering you know pitching to future anthologies as well you, you know and i would say as someone who has pitched with you guys um your work is in very very safe hands and the feedback i've gotten from from the lads on on kind of the stories that i i've done with them has always been for the best like it's always been for the best version of the story it's never it's never been there's never been an argument it's it's always it always comes from a very considered perspective, I think, on the you know how it's going to fit within the whole book, and then what the um, what the what the net effect is on the on the story itself. So yeah, Go I've, I've only ever actually had to ask one person to rewrite much, um, and I say much. One person had to rewrite the entire comic because there wasn't a story. So he was, oh, okay. he, was he was going to let the artist do a lot of great art, but I was like. I, I kind of need the story to to show a bit more because it was lots of vignettes, a series of and, posters. Mm, yeah. I just love and, when and, they don't know what they have to do. That's great. Yeah, but uh, but it was like once I said it to him, he was he was like, "Oh, you're right, yeah." And he, just, he came around like a day later with an actual script that worked really well. That's great. <laughs> it's like okay, uh, all he needed was someone to say actually the, the story is missing from your story but but, well, that, but, but what he ended up producing what, what ended up being good so it was i knew he was a good writer he just hadn't mm. sent me what should what would have been what, and, what and, him out of his pitch and so yeah exactly so i was gonna i was gonna go back to that the story would have been in the pitch his yeah. aims and intentions would have been there in the pitch and sometimes i mean it's happened to me you get lost in just the I don't know the, the 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 great mental image you have, you know, and trying to get that onto onto paper in order to convey that to an artist, and yeah, that can sometimes just take over a script, and then you realize, oh, all I have are, you know, trading cards. Like I don't have a story. <laughs> I have these really nice images and and nothing to say, you know. I mean, um, I've been there as a writer myself, where I was like, I have this great idea, but for some reason it's not working, and. uh and then I realized actually it's because all I have is a concept. I didn't actually have a story. Yeah. <laughs> the entire story was missing from what I was hoping to be a one shot, a one shot novel, graphic novel. So I was like, okay, well, it's yeah. it's just a concept with some plot strapped on somewhere else. <laughs> and can I ask, like, generally, when when you give someone feedback like that, are they generally positive about it, and they they come back with the work, or is there? a few who told uh, you to fuck off like come on <laughs> yeah thin-skinned individuals or has it generally been positive most of the time or it's it's generally been positive yeah still- and i mean myself and gary have different approaches to how we to how we write our comments mm-hmm. um so i'm i'm almost writing as if i'm going to be receiving the comments so i try to be as gentle as possible in how i'm phrasing things mm-hmm. uh whereas gary corrects students essays for a living so <laughs> So sometimes that comes through, but his nice. advice is still helpful. So it, it's like the difference in tone, but the intention always comes comes across anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think the editorial process and down below came came after a long period of correcting correcting essays. <laughs> so I had like, like two hundred essays, and I was still in like lecturer mode. Be like, okay, come on now, push your push yourself a bit, <laughs> Gary. I've, I I found you. I found you um, caring, generous, you know, firm. Uh, and appropriate, I think, with with, with all of the uh, all of the comments I got I got from you. So you know, it's uh, 
It's the, ba- it's the basis for a great a great editorial relationship right there, you know. Um, no, yeah. thanks, Dave. Always, like, I always thought that you your kind of stuff on the thing was very very good, and it was uh, you didn't need much assistance in uh, getting where you needed. Every to be. everyone needs a hand. Um, that's all right. Dave's scripts are, are some of the best. Like uh, when you talk about putting out um, as little as possible to get as much information as cross, he, he hasn't nailed. There's 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 very little dialogue. It's not a load of balloons all over the place. It, everything's quite concise, and uh, it's it's a pleasure to work on. The scripts for the odds are just Ben. Do art now. Yeah. <laughs> Yourself and John Rathbone. Dread grim. Yeah, mm. that's it, man. What else? What else do you need? I mean. You're, you're teaming up with an artist that you trust. So, you know, for the most part, um, uh, it, well, with, with most of the artists that I've worked with, you're teaming up with an artist that you trust. And, uh, uh, you know, you wouldn't be teaming up with them if you didn't like their stuff. So I think you just let the artist do what impressed you in the first place. And I think some, like, you know, years and years and years ago, um, starting out, uh, you could be, I could certainly be very over descriptive and over proscriptive on my scripts and then you're you're not giving the artist an opportunity to to interpret the work you're you're just telling them what to do and i, I think that's yeah that that just hurts a book you know yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean i know no, sorry go on ben no please i was just going to talk about like um Dave's right that there needs to be kind of synergy between the artist and the writer. But when you guys get pitches, it might not necessarily be coming in from a team of an artist and a writer. You have to pair them. Like, is, is that a difficult process you have to do? So we don't pair people. Um, oh, I thought you guys did. So I, I decided when I was saying turning roads that I do, I would not have the mental capacity or the energy to do that. Wise um, turns out that was a really good idea as well, because when I was responding to people, I had COVID. So I had even less energy. <laughs> so, uh, th- yeah, it was, it was, I, I, it's, it's, I've seen two different ways ontologies doing it where some people kind of apply as individual creators and they get teamed up or people apply as teams and people applying as teams was preferable to me because it meant that I knew everything going forward for a story and I wasn't hoping that I would find an artist that would fit a pitch idea that I liked. Uh, uh, they, would, they would have to come together. So it, we end up having to judge entire teams and the pitch as one thing. Yeah, that's, uh, that sounds a lot easier. Yeah, but it also means that we can sometimes have to turn away stories that we like because maybe the artist isn't up to scratch on it, and it, it's horrible to have to do that. But mm-hmm. it's it's kind of necessary, and you sort of just hope that it doesn't make them quit comics. You hope that people will just keep trying and improving mm-hmm. because I feel like when people see who gets into books in the end, they go, "Okay, maybe I wasn't good enough for that then." And I kind of hope that people will evaluate in that sense, you know, they, they compare what's gotten through and, you know, okay, I have some work to do before I pitch again. Um, because I, I feel like it's it's valuable to keep trying. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And, but also to have a look at what comes out after, because if if you can, if you think it, you're just getting rejected because they didn't like your stuff, but it can be actually, they just have to pick something that has more experience behind it and you can see the artist's work behind it. Um, and when you get so many pitches as well, and there's so little space in the book. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. it's yeah. just, we like both of these, but we have to go with one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was something that definitely happened in them below where there's a lot of times where we had two people pit or two teams pitching for the same myth. Yeah. And even if it was a team that in any other scenario would have been included in the book because it wasn't the better of the two. And we only had, there was, a, there was very limited scope for having mo- more than one interpretation of the same myth. Like, the Odyssey gets a couple of stories because it's so long and you can have different parts of Odysseus's life mm-hmm. in there and they're kind of t- almost as if they were two completely different myths anyway. But, uh, I, I think there's, oh, there's three. <laughs> there, there's three, yeah. But, but, that, but that was part of, part of the calculus we had to make. It's like sometimes stories you love and teams you love, just there's only a certain amount of space. And mm-hmm. there's only a certain amount of people who can do interpretations of the same myth without it being feeling stilted and without just overloading the book with uh, very similar stories. Yeah. So that's all we have. And so like, like, I think that's something that people don't often take account of as well, that sometimes it's not the case that your story was, was bad or anything like that. It's just, they, it, it just didn't have a place it's, in the book yeah. itself. Yeah. It's that, that's, that's a good point. Like, um, because 
when you have 180 submissions and you can only have a space for 20 or 22, I mean, there's unfortunately a lot of people you have to say no to. Um, so yeah. it does put you in a nice position where you get to pick the best that, that all fit together. You know, you kind of put the jigsaw together properly as opposed to just maybe picking a few pieces you thought would, would uh, are, are of a high quality. You get to pick the pieces that are the high quality and all gel together seamlessly. And uh, you've done a hell of a job. I mean, the books have been absolutely astounding. Covers are unbelievable as well. Yes, we're, we've been very lucky that the, the, the established pros uh, have, have actually said yes to doing covers first. Um, we're just collecting the eclectic mix just to uh, <laughs> 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 just hang their art on the wall. <laughs> so so is, that, is, that a, is that a hint as to how many anthologies you're planning? So once you get all the mix to do a cover, that's, that's it then. You're, you're out. We can no, retire we'll have to, we'll, we'll have to go outside of, outside of the eclectic mix at some point because... Yeah. Uh, we're, we're we're picking the the artists based on the the books. So Declan would have done sci-fi and fantasy, so he was the natural one to go to for turning roads. And we'd done his course a few years ago, so he'd kind of been yeah. the person who was there when we were launching the outbreak. Um, so if, if it felt appropriate to ask him to do the first cover, um, and then with with Stephen Mooney, obviously he does his own crime stuff and his Norse stuff. So that was a natural fit. And Nick Roach does his horror stuff. So it's it's trying to find an artist whose work complements the theme and the genre they're going with. Yeah. Um, and eventually we'll run out of Irish people for that. But hopefully... <laughs> I, 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 don't know if... I don't think we will. Yeah, I, I, take, I take contention with that. <laughs> I, think, I think you're underestimating how many ideas for books I have. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. You're you're bringing up a whole new generation of Irish artists as well, you know. So so mm-hmm. you know, by the time you get to book ten, you know, you'll be you'll be drawn on on some new faces or some 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 old new faces uh, as it is um, uh, that that would have debuted in in your earlier books, you know. So they they'll be established at that stage, um, and I'll, I'll still be applying. I'll still be I'll still be I'll still be thrown in thrown in a pitch you here. Better be. Yeah, yeah, man. Well, if I'm, you know, if I'm still, if I'm still the right side of the of the of the earth, um, okay. So, on that point, um, everybody comes to the odds pod, you know, and gets asked a big question. So we've got we've got two guests on today, so we're going to do them do them one at a time. But please feel free to chime in with your opinions. I, I know you will. Um, so Paul, what's your favorite apocalypse? Okay, so this is. This has to come with the context that uh, this almost fits in with what I studied in college, okay. except that they didn't teach us this in college. Um, and my undergrad was in religious education uh, to be a teacher, not to, not because I liked Jesus or anything. Um, so I, I've gone with the, the classics, the Book of Revelations. Okay. Um, the original Apocalypse <laughs> is this one. Yeah, is it, yeah. I, I Go big or go home, I think is... <laughs> but... Uh, I think it's because it's also been interpreted in so many other ways as well. It falls into so many different media forms. Yeah. So like it shows up in Supernatural, uh, good, good Omen deals with it. Like it, it pops up and it's just, I like how other people deal with the very Christian aspects of it and just yeah. turn it on its head. Um, but it was also the first book of the Bible I ever read start to finish, which is, oh. <laughs> in fact, I think it's possibly the only one. Yeah, I was going to ask. Scripture yeah. in college. What did you I think studied, of Leviticus? I scripture yeah. in college, yeah. but I'm pretty sure I didn't finish any of those books. So <laughs> there's a reason I don't teach religion. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I Can I ask, like, out of all those interpretations of it, what, what was your favorite? What was the one that resonated the most? Uh, I think the, the supernatural one is kind of my comfort one. Because is that, is like, that season three? Is it? Is that? That is. I think it's seasons three leading into five. Okay, um, okay. And that that's when the show should have ended because it got bad for about six seasons, um, which is longer than it ran while it was good. But uh, yeah, I just see. it do? Fifteen in the end. Fifteen. It it had many apocalypses in, in and of itself, um, but I don't think any of them quite trump the actual biblical apocalypse. Um, but I just I liked I liked the introduction of the different horsemen because the horsemen seem to be the big thing that people focus on, and I'm kind of preferable to the horsemen over the beasts at the end because the horsemen seem to have some sort of personality, and every now and then I try to write my own version of of, of an interpretation of these, so I, I have my own different versions of the horsemen pop up in different stories that never see the light of day, and I think it's just there's something to it where there's 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 a lot to play with 
Yeah. Um, so, and, and you know it's public domain because because Jesus died two thousand years ago. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't even write it, man. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he was Gonzo by the time the uh, the 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 book of the, of, of Revelation was put was put together allegedly. Um, yeah. Okay. So that yeah, there's some there's some wild stuff in there. You know, there's um, and it's like it spawned so many metal albums as well. I mean. Yeah. It's, there's a whole subgenre of 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 revelatory um uh, metal out there too but um like for me you know it's something that resonates I was you know and you probably if you've been following the podcast you probably heard me bang on about this before but like I was brought up catholic um not so much anymore uh, but um there was there was a there was a time in my life when uh, you know, as a, as a, as a kid, you'd be dragged to, to various different masses and prayer things and all, you know, that kind of stuff. And, um, it was all kind of, oh yeah, okay. We say the thing and we stand up and we kneel down, whatever. And that's cool. Um, and then I remember somebody doing a reading from the book of revelation and you're just kind of sitting there in the church and then it's like, and the great beast. And you're like, hang on a second. What was it? What? What was that? <laughs> There's a beast now. <laughs> somebody mentioned a dragon. It's like your hand up in mass and yeah. ask questions. Yeah, Can what, you say that bit again? Yeah, yeah. there was... So, what uh, have I been? Have I just not been paying attention this whole time? And there's like dragons and shit going on here. What, what what's going? What's the story? You know, and uh, you know, and you get into stuff like the horsemen, like the you know the the um, what what are the horsemen? So there's there's was a pestilence, death, um, famine and war, famine and war. Okay, so I mean, you know. Yeah, yeah we've collected them since the pandemic started. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> There's about 12 horsemen in the apocalypse. Yeah. <laughs> They're doing an honorary victory lap now at this stage. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. But yeah, man, I mean, that was one that really kind of, you know, would make, make your ears prick up. And I remember one, one lad, a friend of mine years ago, like we were in, we were in school and it was, you know, the, 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 the local younger priest would come in to rap about, you know, Jesus and shit. And, um, <laughs> You know, he'd be doing like Bible readings and stuff. Has anyone got a favorite passage from the Bible, you know? And Phil would go, yeah, I do, you know? And Phil was like this big rocker and, you know, long hair. And um, and he grabbed the Bible off the priest. And he'd, be like, you know, and, and he'd go, oh, where is it? You know, and uh, he grabbed the Bible and just flicked the end. <laughs> and you, know, you could see the priest's face. It was just like, I know what's coming. <laughs> I know what's coming. <laughs> and then it's all about the beast eating the thing in the sky and the angel with the billion eyes and all this, you know. And it, like, it's just amazing. Everybody, you know, just listening to everything Phil was saying. And there's no way that priest got, could get the get the class back. You know, it's just just so so crazy. Like what goes on? It's like, you know. Can I ask you guys? Like, like I know there's loads of stuff, but I mean, what? What specifically happens in it? Like, I mean, everything. I, I know. So, yeah. so the idea is that uh, I say the idea because you know this, the whole thing is supposed to be like a a, a prophetic dream that um, that John has, and it's supposed to be the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, uh, even though the books were written like a hundred years apart. Um, so, the idea is that he's he's seeing. What, what is going to come at the end of the world. So like the sky turns completely black, the stars fall out of the sky, which I was told was a cool image. So I stole it for a book. Um, and it's just like the, the different seals that are guarding hell are being broken one by one. Uh, there's there's a few mad figures in it. I can't remember them all now. But uh, but once once the seals are broken, the horsemen arrive and the horsemen are heralding the apocalypse rather than bringing it. So mm-hmm. they're just to let you know that, okay, yeah, the, the world's ending now. Um, and and r- roughly speaking, God saves about 10,000 people. In fact, I think it's, he saves 10,000 people exactly and then the rest are left to die. Um, the beast gets to take claim to the rest of, of the planet until God uh, just puts an end to it all and they build I think it's New Jerusalem or something like that so it's you know, the new, a new paradise on earth for these 10,000 people that he's previously saved and it's supposed to be like a do-over yes. <laughs> I'd like to be on that 10,000 people list you know? I don't know man you know like the other side they they, they look much cooler better music <laughs> you know they're not enjoying it though yeah <laughs> Um, so who was it? There was somebody on on Twitter the other day, and they were asking the question, if they or they saw a question that was asked on like Yahoo Answers, and it was um, it was Josh Cruz 
um, retweeted it. And the question was, if I go to heaven and I don't like it, do I have to stay there? Can I break <laughs> out? You know? And I was like, man, that's a book. That's a book yeah, in itself. That's a great that's pitch. That's all dogs yeah. go to heaven. Well, that's actually a season of Supernatural. There you go. It's <laughs> <laughs> <Every>, season 12. <laughs> but like, yes. you know, it's it just, just amazing, you know, that, that the, the assumption that, you know, and in the end, everything's going to be fine for, you know, God and his 10,000 buddies, you know. But, um, but what if you don't like it? What if, what if you, you know, what if you want to listen uh, to me? I, I have a flip side of that. Um, so it was, it was a teaching college and my first teaching placement was in a primary school because they were trying to warm us up to before we went to the teenagers. Um, and little lad puts his hand up and I knew already that he was an atheist and he was 11. Um, so he was smart. And he goes, sir, if you don't believe in God, just look at it to heaven. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I couldn't say to him, like, well, if you don't believe in God, why do you believe in heaven? So I just said, yes, because God just cares about how you live. <laughs> yeah, which fair. Is, you know, it's just it's the purest form of Christianity. Just live well. Uh, yeah. Did he take that well then, or did he try and like pin you on it? You know, or was... oh no, he he likes that answer because right. it, it was kind of his get out of jail free for not believing in God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, man, absolutely. Like you know, why it's the most refreshingly honest question I've ever had mm. as a teacher. Much better than when the student threw a table at me. Well, that's a different story. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Jesus. I told you this is a reason about a teacher <laughs> was he a big kid or something like no. was he in primary school as well or what was going no, on 14 year old little shit just threw wow. a temper tantrum because I stopped him attacking a student <laughs> well you know of crowd yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah every day is a performance you know going in as a teacher I don't yeah. know I don't know how, don't know how teachers do it it's oh, exhausting no, no. I mean, you I think would, he'd start with throwing tomatoes, no? Tables. Oh, he gosh. didn't have anything else. His desk was empty because he, he didn't bring his books to class. So, okay. Okay. <laughs> so he just threw the whole table. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or not, that you, you aren't also dodging compasses and, 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 and pencils, you know? I think it shows a certain level of ingenuity on the young person's behalf, to be honest with you, that he was able to improvise to such an extent that he could still find something to turn into a projectile, even though it was mm. a piece of furniture. So you got to give him props for that, you know? Um, but listen, let's uh, let's move it. Let's move it on from you know the end of everything to to the end of or maybe beginning of something. So, Gary, what's your favorite apocalypse? So, given that Paul has been talking about religion, I want to talk about the political ap- apocalypse that is twenty twenty two. No, not me. I, I, I'm not going to force that upon you and have the dark perhaps so the darkest episode of the odds pod. Uh, no, no, my favorite apocalypse kind of ties to something that you talked about before, Dave, uh, when you were talking about the Transformers being your first experience of a dead world and what that is like. I want to talk about the United, the UK Sonic the Comic. So this is a comic that came out in the 90s and early 2000s at the height of Sega Mania, really only released in Ireland and the UK. And it was a... A, a, a series about Sonic the Hedgehog and various sort of Sega properties. Uh, but it was my first experience of sort of the dystopia, the sort mm-hmm. of the the political dystopia where fascist dictator sort of takes over. Because what was interesting about Sonic the Comic, and it's something that Sonic the Comic is very is very interesting kind of artifact of itself, because it's not something that's been republished since then. It's not something that, that is very well known outside of Ireland the UK. But if you ask a lot of Irish or UK creators from the last 20 years, like what was their first comic? What really kind of got them into the medium and stuff? Sonic comic comes up, come up, comes up the whole time. And it was certainly that for me. It was one of the first comics that I collected regularly. And it had this kind of interesting conceit earlier on. So when it started off, it was kind of doing Beano style stuff. It was doing stories that were kind of like done in ones, yeah. mm-hmm. funny stories with uh, almost Looney Tunes where Robotnik is this uh, buffoon sort of character who gets gets his comeuppance every sing, single episode that comes up and you the likes of you even had the likes of Mark Miller writing these stories at the very very start and then about 10 or 12 issues in they kind of they there's a couple of things that happen one of them is that the writer artist duo of Nigel Kitching and Richard Ellison start working together on the stories and 
it leads to this kind of status quo change where through various timey-wimey shenanigans, Robotnik sends Sonic and his friends six months into the future. And by the time they arrive in the future, he's taken over. So the entire planet has been... It's it's not like in some Sonic media where they're converted and they're like robots and it's just kind of very industrialized. It is the planet. It's just now ruled by Robotnik and Robotnik is the dictator. So he has big screens with his face on it and is saying propaganda, you know, you work for for Robotnik, you know, Robotnik is style things. Uh, And... You, and they they have the people of Mobius are still living their lives they're now just living it under his rule so they're not stuck in robots or anything like that some of them some of them are but most of them are still living aren't they building the robots to put their friends in aren't they, they so at the start yeah. they are but what they kind of change once the robotic is taken over is that he's able to create robots that just function without having the animals inside so He's got these almost stormtrooper spots going around the whole time who are like police in the street. And Sonic and his friends have to kind of go underground and become this resistance guerrilla group of fighters fighting against a fighting a war they've already lost. So by the time they come they come back, Robotnik's in control. So while they continue to have some one-off adventures and some longer adventures, the victories they have are only small victories. So they stop this particular plan or this particular scheme Robotnik has. But he's still in charge. He still has everything going on. So yeah, they might stop him from creating a new super weapon, but it doesn't matter because he still controls the rest of the planet. And so they're just chipping away at it. And even though it's still primarily, it's a, it's a comic made for kids, mm-hmm. it really kind of like ingrained in me at that early age like what that kind of dystopic world feels like yeah. when the entire system is stacked against you and winning a battle doesn't mean much because there's still more to come. And it almost seems inconceivable that you can overcome those systemic problems. So the kind of, I then kind of like, as I grew up kind of like, you know, I read stuff like from Philip K. Dick, I read, Judge Dredd in 2018. And those same thematic ideas that are kind of expanded in a more, for lack of a better word, more adult fashion in comics and media, they're all there in Sonic the Comic and they're all being explored. And I remember in particular, there's one, there's one storyline uh, in, because while Sonic the Comic started with just having a Sonic strip and then like various other strips reinterpreting Sega characters, Eventually, they all became Sonic spin-offs. And one of the be- best ones, I thought, was the Knuckles series that was done, where it was, Richard, it was uh, Nigel Kitching writing it, and then Nigel Dobin uh, was drawing it, the late Nigel Dobin. And one of the stories they have is a, is a kind of a reinterpretation or a parody of The Wicker Man, where there's this, <laughs> Knuckles, gets cap- Knuckles gets captured by this cult uh, and has to kind of like work out... They, they basically just do The Wicker Man. Oh, man, I gotta And then at the this. end, it revealed that Robotnik has been in charge. Right. And Knuckles is like, all right, but now I've got you. And he's like, he's like, okay, well, what are you going to do with me? He's like, you know, you're not going to kill me, are you? And like, of course, because Knuckles is a hero and this is a kid's comic, of course he's not going to kill him. He's like, and he's like, you know, but you can't turn me over to the police because, you know, I'm the police. So yeah, you've stopped me, but there's nothing you can really do to me right now because mm-hmm. I've got X amount of badniks, X amounts of robots ready to pounce on you if you do. So he like the end of the storyline is like Knuckles just has to walk away so and accept that he can't he can't win. Yeah. So Gary, I like I don't know if it's if it's public knowledge, um, but you've gone on to have a career in the law. <laughs> <laughs> Has ha, had the, the, the lessons of, you know, Sonic the comic and the social injustice that you would have seen on the streets of Mobius, did, did they have an impact on you and kind of steer you towards the career that you have now? I mean, I'm not going to go that far. I'm not going to go as far as say, like, I can, everything I have in life, I owe to Sonic the comic. I thought I was going to get a breakthrough like, but, but I suppose, like, a lot of that kind of, the kind of me, the the medium and the TV and the comics that are and media that was made for kids back in the nineties mm. was often very message oriented, even if it wasn't overtly. So you had the likes of Cla- Captain Planet, yeah, and stuff like that, which were very much you know world peace, anti pollution. 
Like, there's the entire episode of Captain Planet where they go up the north yeah, to oh talk God. about the Trolls. Yeah, yeah. We could, <laughs> like, we could do so, two hours on that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you do, let me know. Yeah, we'll uh, do. But, 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 it, but I think that was part of a lot of, of, of the media that we grew up on was that. So I suppose to some extent, like, a lot of that media is about try, was about trying to create, like, socially conscious people. Hmm. So other forms, like it was all the pro-environmentalism, like, you know, like kind of human rights kind of focus things or things that are about like, trying to make the world better and yeah. strive against systemic injustices. So I suppose it's something that I've always been interested in. And so that kind of like fed into why I wanted to do the law, but it's not a sort of, it's not a direct link, but I suppose it ha- those initial ideas come from somewhere and they come from the yeah. things you, you read and you watch growing up. And like, I suppose it's the same with superhero comics and things like that. So that you want to do, or you think that, that, that there's an idea that might shouldn't make right. And ultimately there should be a way to fairly resolve issues and resolve, solve problems. And that's what a lot of that kind of media is about. So I suppose there is an, there's probably an underlying kind of thing there, but I'm not sure if it's because I was interested in those things. So that's why I became a lawyer or thing, but I I, I don't think it's a direct thing, but I think, I think it's a fair cop to be honest, Dave. <laughs> you got me. <laughs> maybe maybe they needed that like under under fire under resistance team. You know they needed a lawyer in there. You know that might help an awful You know lot, what? That's you know? that's that's a that's that's a great answer. And um, mm. the only other answer I would have accepted from you was no. I I just really like money. So um, <laughs> no, that's 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 pretty good, man. That's 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 pretty good. Um, so. I'm not I'm not that close to this world. I did buy the games back in the day, but I think yeah. they, they predate the comic by a good few years. Um and I, games, I love that comic. I, I don't think I missed an story. issue. Yeah. So and you're right, you know, people kind of 10 years and and you and younger, you know, from me were all affected by that comic from what I can tell, you know, certainly in kind of Ireland and the UK. Um, so Ben, you're, you're about 10 years younger than me and yeah, you've mentioned it many times before, you know, and I've seen you go off on little Sonic, the comic, um, rants. rants see, I thought and... I knew it. And then Gary started talking about it and I go, I don't know shit about Sonic the Conic. I can't tell if you know comics. a lot more. Sorry. This is just Gary on comics. I, I can't tell if he knew loads more or was just way more eloquent than I'll ever be in my life about anything. <laughs> um, but uh, I totally, I totally agree with the idea of, of of introducing a kind of a dystopian story to a really young audience. And I remember it hitting me straight away. Um, it was, um, I think, page one. Um, I forget what issue number. It was drawn by Richard Elson. And I remember the stories just being kind of like something I'd like to copy and draw from and stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember getting ready to draw like the shapes because there was always a particular shape they had for Sonic when he was in the, the ball spinning around. And um, I remember then seeing like uh, Richard Elson drawing Sonic coming towards the reader off the page and he's spinning the legs and he's running out. But I remember like seeing his hands. And it wasn't just like a bald kind of a Mickey Mouse hand with three fingers. Sonic had five fingers and um, it looked like a really adult hand and the glove had a cuff that had like loads of weight to it. And I went, oh my God, this is amazing. I must have, I must have drawn that particular hand, that Sonic a million and one times. And to this day, I credit Richard Nelson for me starting my, my journey on trying to figure out how to draw a good hand. Um, but yeah. Sorry. Gary, this this is one for Gary, but um, do you like? I I see this a lot with the the books that we look. You know, we've been lucky enough growing up here because we get the best of both worlds. We get we get American comic books, we get UK comic books, um, and certainly you know over the last kind of thirty thirty forty years or so, the, the quality has been exceptional from from the UK. But do you think Sonic the comic could have been made by? an American company or American creators, do you think it would have been? Because looking at it, like from what I've seen of it and from what you guys are talking about, it seems like it could only have been made in the UK. I think, well, they tried to make their own comics. They had their own comics. The, the longest running comic for years was the Archie comic series. Like that was hitting two, 
50 issues before eventually the license went to IDW. They kind of like approached it more on a a soap opera approach where they were kind of focused on, oh, the relationship between the characters and they were kind of very romance focused in a way. Uh, they still had a kind of a wider, they, ha- they had a kind of dystopic version of Mobius as well where Robotnik had taken over, but it was, it was just all industrialized and he'd taken away the free will of all the characters. So it wasn't a sort of thing where it was, it was, I suppose it was more of an apocalypse in that there's nothing left. But I think what interested me about the Sonic comic was that it was that dystopia. And I think it, it had so many people who had worked, who worked on it either initially or then went on to work for 2000 AD. And I think it very much became a sort of a baby's first 2000 AD almost. And it, it came from that influence of the, the kind of the punk comics movements of the 1970s and 80s, the, the, Star Lords, the 2000 ADs, all that kind of stuff there. Like, and it kind of, it aped the format. So they were all like five page stories for the most part, some multi-part, some done in ones. So I think you're right, Dave. I think it could only have been done in the UK because it had that influence and, and the creators who were working on it had grown up or had worked directly on 2000 AD. And so when they got a chance to work and essentially get a, a blank slate mm. of to build a world, they infuse those kind of elements into it. Uh, and I think the anthology format that it, that it, it used is certainly something that really only exists in the UK comic scene. So I think it, it definitely is a product of it. Simon, a product of that kind of, a product of the house that 2000 AD built, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. And it's so, did you stick with it right to the end? I did. So I initially... I had the same problem. I think a lot of people who were growing up at the time had like that. You'd go to the news agency, you get some issues and you wouldn't get, get others. And then you were relying on, on your, your parents to get it for you. And sometimes they wouldn't. So I think I, I got, I think I got it more. Cons- no. Oh no. I think we just lost Gary. Just as he was Our, oh God. going to reveal his deepest, darkest secrets. Our first zoom fail of the odds. It's end. Oh, uh, gotcha. Ironically, oh. Gary, back? you're back. You're, okay. Yeah, we lost you after your parents. Okay, so I think uh, for, for <laughs> just, the purpose of the edit, just yeah, actually, just just bear that in mind. Just give it a gap for a second, right? And, yeah, and just 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 count yourself in in two. And I suppose as I was growing up and having to rely on my parents' spite, I got more into it, and I got more, uh, I got more consistent with it as it was nearing its end. Because there was a, a policy or a strange sort of policy that Fleetway, who was the publisher, had at the time where that they, they dealt in five-year reader cycles. So after five years, they essentially would just switch to reprint material right. and just perpetually reprint that uh, until it stopped selling. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's the sort of the face that happened to Sonic Comics. So it built towards over 150 issues or 170 issues eventually the overthrowing of a robotnik the tearing down of the statues literally like the original anti-fascist tearing yeah. down of statues was in sonic comic back in the 90s <laughs> uh but i think i i came into it or at least my my consistent reading that came into it at a point where it had switched fully to reprints no. so it was building back up to that point and building back up to the eventual what they cut the storyline the final victory yeah uh so i and i ultimately stuck with it to the end until Obviously, it wasn't selling enough for the reprints to keep to keep going. Uh, but I remember, and I think it's interesting that I think previously you used to talk about they did like made the ending of a comic as an apocalypse of itself. And I remember getting that last issue and not knowing it was the last issue because it wasn't a sort of like that they had prepped it beforehand going, oh, a next issue, a, a surprise or something like that. Yeah, It was very much, they'd finished the storyline and then there was a couple of other pay, extra pages at the end, which turned out to be a, this is the final issue we want to thank everyone who was involved. But I didn't see that initially because I was like, oh, that's not comics. I'm going to skip through, yeah. through that. Yeah. So I kept going back to the news agents and be like, why isn't this on the comic here? <laughs> and eventually it was like on my, one of my many kind of rereads things going, oh, oh no, it's, it's finished. When uh, I kind of stuck with it and like people stuck with it longer because I think one of the, the cool things, the interesting things about it was that like the people who were reading that at the time like didn't really accept it and they went on to create Sonic the Comic Online to continue the storyline themselves. Really? A, a publication that's still running today. Like 20 years out, because the last issue came out in 2003, I think. Right. But like 20 years later, 
there's still people who are like making their own continuation of this story. So oh, many of whom have gone on to work in Sonic Comics proper. So there's people who worked on that wow. now working at AEW. And are these stories like considered canon? Like, is that that's working? Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. one of the things because I, I met Nigel Kitching at one point, uh, and like there's, I think he's 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 like endorsing saying, "Oh, this is unofficially official. Like, this is the closest thing you're going to get to an official con- continuation uh, as is possible." And particularly given that there's there's loads of weird rights issues, which means that none of this stuff is reprinted and probably unlikely to ever be reprinted. So it's a like it, it's a it's very much a, a relic of of its time and something that can that but that still continues and still still exists. So I think it's a it's an interesting one from that that perspective too. Wow, man, that's uh, that's and, a whole other world I, I knew yeah. nothing about. Yeah, we should point out only Anne Hamilton drew for Earth once. Oh really? Yeah, <laughs> oh, really. Yeah. What? I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, Le- Leanne has drawn for Sonic to Comic Online. <laughs> yeah, a couple of times. Doing Sonic stories and then doing like Sega stories. So I think she did a version of Eternal Champions at one point. Right. Very cool. Awesome. I actually, I forgot they used to do other Sega titles. Like there was Star Fox and everything on, on in that book as well. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Mar- Mark Miller did a Streets of Rage series. I remember that. Yeah, I think we talked about it at some top up event years ago or something. Actually. We probably did. We probably uh, did. Things one of the things that was when I was like, "Oh yeah, other people read this." <laughs> it's great to find a friend about that kind of stuff when you uh, like have have read this when you were ten, and then you know, fifteen, twenty years later, you put someone else, and Dave's done it too. You know? That is that is the greatest feeling in the world, and it's it's one of those things that you only really get at a you know at a show. When you bump yeah. into someone and you're just chatting and maybe a cosplayer walks by and, you know, you think you're the only person in the in the room who knows the name of that character. And then the, the person standing beside you, you know, announces to you that they've they've got all of the uh, the original issues plus the trade paperbacks and the very special yeah. edition hardback signed by, you know, X, Y and Z. And then, you you know, you're just you're, you're, you're friends for life then, you know. And then they talk to Gary and they realize Gary knows more. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, 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 conventions, I, I, conventions. Like, I just, I just get endless enjoyment from Gary just pointing out anime characters from across the room. Going, oh, you're that person. You're that person. And I was like, how does he remember all of these things? Mm. You're an enigma, Gary. That's impressive. <laughs> it's impressive. But, well, in fairness, I did once, like when I used to work in some comic journalism for Monkey Fighting Robots. Uh, I did once do a kind of big retrospective on Sonic the Comic when the Archie series was announced to an end was ending and that they had lost the license as being like, Hey, Archie fans, I understand. I lost my Sonic comic too. <laughs> oh, that was nice. You're giving them the benefit of your experience, you know, easing yeah. them into their grief. This has been the weirdest episode we've done. <laughs> good, I good. gotta say, the, the, we are the weirdest pairing. <laughs> I mean, we were, we were talking about, you know, the eclectic mix earlier, but this, this is an eclectic mix. This is, you know, mm. yeah, this is the, the actual end of the world as seen through, you know, the, uh, the Bible and, um, the end of a world as seen through a hedgehog. So have we talked about the eclectic mix before? Have we discussed or described to anyone who is maybe not Irish and not the comics to who oh, they are? Give, or what give, they give, give them the rundown there. Who wants to take it? I, I think I'll leave you guys to describe, describe it because uh, so I, this, I know most of the story, but I don't think I know the full story. Uh, so look, it's, just, it was, it's just these old dudes that draw. Like, I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> you know, that's, that's it at this well, point. Hacks. So, you know. and I wouldn't say hacks. I mean, one or two of them are good. But, you know, if, you've, if, if, if you're out there and you've, you've read a comic and you've thought, you know, there's a faint whiff of Irishness off, but it was probably by one of the mix. So they one of those seven guys, are yeah. Deck Shelby. Will Sliney, Nick Roach, PJ Holden, help me out here, Ben. I'm going to run. Leno Grady. Leno Grady, Steve Mooney. It was Thompson. 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 Uh, yeah, Steve Thompson. Thompson was in there. Yeah. There was one day that was a free for all. You'd have Tom Moore, you'd have some other Irish guy, oh, and some other Irish guy as well. As well. Yeah. 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 Was Bob Byrne technically one of the mix? Bob Byrne was, was one of the founding yeah, mix. Yeah. 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 Um, but essentially, every day of the week on an old blog spot, they they have their given day and they'd have to produce something based on a theme that week uh, on that day and uh, yeah it's it was great Twitter. for yeah I loved it um, it still exists it's still, still up there it. all the blog spots are still there yeah yeah, yeah. blog spots yeah and I think I have a printed I have one of their books I found in Dumb City Comics just oh, like wow. a collective thing of like I my drawings wow. I was like I'm getting this just so I can embarrass Dick in a pub someday nice, <laughs> nice. Yeah. 
and an old comic relic, like an old issue of a Sonic the Comic, just uh, gathering dust in the back of a shelf somewhere, like uh, waiting to be found. That's that's a find. That's great. I thought they were all gone. No, yeah, it was it just. I think it's because Doom uh, City Comics just happens to have loads of these random books that just show up out of nowhere. I think it might have been handed in second hand, but it was still in really good nick. Um, so it probably belonged to one of the lads. <laughs> <laughs> Hilarious. Hilarious. All right. So guys, not to, not to, you know, focus on, on, uh, the end of things, um, too much. What are you guys looking forward to? What's coming up that, uh, you want to talk about? So we've got fractured realms, maybe give us, give us the, give us the pitch on that. Uh, so fractured realms is an upcoming collection of Norse horror comics. Um, so it's it's reimagining stories in a modern day setting. So that we're not just telling Viking stories as they would have appeared if we tell them traditionally. Um, at the moment, we don't know who's in it because we are still open for pitches until the end of January. Uh, but it, it could is, be you. <laughs> it could be you. Uh, it is. It is guaranteed to have uh, twenty four stories because it is somehow amazingly funded by the Arts Council. Hey, um, yeah, well done. So, yeah, it was. I had to check the email about four or five times before I could tell anyone because I just didn't believe that it was. <laughs> I like, did they mean to send this to me? It's amazing um, news. So it, it is. It is one of it is one of three projects that will be out next year from the break that was funded by the Arts Council. Yeah. Um, all I'm doing grant, I just put in one big application and yeah. got lucky. <laughs> Good. It, it's, that's money well spent on you guys. Yeah, that wasn't luck, man. They, you know, the Arts Council doesn't doesn't does not give money away. Um, flippantly so you know they 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 see it they see a winner in what you guys are doing so that that's fantastic and look it's great to get some of your tax dollars back isn't it you know like in fairness yeah you know, there's potholes everywhere we may as well get some comic books out of it you know um yeah gary what's 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 on the horizon what, what's going on well other than working on on fractured realms uh i think both paul and i are going to be working on our own comics uh I have nothing that I can officially talk about, unfortunately. Uh, so unfortunately, I'm a bit like Alejandro, who I think whose episode came out today, uh, and also was in a similar position. But uh, but we're we're both working on stuff. It's uh, even though we're we're putting a lot of effort into the, the mythology anthologies, we're still working away at our own bits, making pitches, going for longer series. Obviously, Paul and Garrett have me out. I'd like to go back and do more lens. So. Lens, cool. for, for those of you who don't know, is the kind of spy-fi thriller that I did with Raquel Kuziak and Claire Napier uh, a couple of years ago, which is the elevator pitch is what if Lois Lane was secretly John Wick? So it's about a photojournalist who moonlights as an assassin. And kind of the, the, the idea for that was to try to approach it where each collection is a bit like an airport novel where like a Jack Reacher where you can read it on its own and be satisfied by it. But if you read all of them together, there's underlying mythologies and there's underlying themes that kind of keep cropping back up. So you obviously get a, more of an experience if you read everything. But you could just pick it up, uh, even if it was volume number two, and just read that. So I'd like to get to go back and do that. Uh, but fingers crossed, uh, we'll be able to talk about uh, more series that that we're doing, both through Limit Break and then hopefully outside of Limit Break too. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, and if anybody wants to get in touch with you or find you online, where, where are the best spots for that? Collectively, uh, breakcomics.com. Uh, and individually, uh, we're both on social media. I guess Twitter's still alive at the moment. Um, so that's, that's where we're most active. I'm Writer Anonymous there. Uh, Gary, you probably need to spell yours for international audiences. Yeah, so if you if you search Gary Maloney, you'd find it. But if you want to to, to get it, I'm I'm uh, at M underscore Garrod. So it's a bit of the old Gaelga coming in. So G E A R O I D uh, M underscore Garrod on Twitter, and then just Gary Maloney. Most other places, I'm on Instagram as well. Who knows? I'll be on the fla- the the social media flavor of the month. The next while, ah, whether yeah. that be oh, yeah. Hive, whether it be mm. Mastodon, sure. or whatever we choose. Yeah, what'll it be next? Yeah, yeah. Now we're also. Uh, you guys have a shop on your website, don't you? You guys are. We do. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, um, some of the stuff we discussed, you can go pick up on um, their store link on the sh- on the website, guys. Yeah, yeah. And, and by and the time you listen to this, down below, we should be available to all backers, so that should be there as well. 
Oh, will that be going out to retail as well? Yes. Yes. Yep. Excellent. Okay, so we'll see it in comic book stores. Certainly, you'll see it in comic book stores. So certainly early 2023. Uh, I don't yeah. think they'll they'll want us harassing them right before Christmas. <laughs> I, I I know a few who you should harass anyway. Um, okay, I do make a habit of it. <laughs> we will leave it there, fellas. Thanks so much for coming on the odds pod. No, the Thank brilliant. Thanks, Thanks very much. Yeah, it was excellent. And, uh, you know, this evening, as I do my Bible reading, I'll be thinking of the, uh, the, 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 the four horsemen of Mobius and, uh, you know, giant, giant, Lord and Savior, Shadow the Hedgehog. There we go. <laughs> On that note, thanks very much. Thanks for joining us on The Odds Pod. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for The Odds coming soon from Scout Comics. And please tell us what your favourite apocalypse is. You can find me on Twitter at Benessy. That's B-E-N-N-E-S-S-Y. And me on at Dave Hendrick. Big thanks to our producer, Adrian Carty, and we'll see you at the end of the world. <laughs>